All right, friends. Well, welcome back to the podcast. We have a, a new friend with us, Justin McRoberts. And um, Justin is an author, a former musician. Uh, if I understand right, you put out 16 records and EPs. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. And um, were you were you in a band or was that all solo work? All solo work. Just okay. me and the guitar. I would conscript the help of other people, usually, usually willingly to help me make the records but it was all a solo project yeah yeah and you were like touring in the big ccm days yeah <laughs> yes with, with yes. all of that yeah i did i did some of that okay okay I, I mean i feel like maybe that ends up playing into some of the things i want to ask you about before i ask you about your book but Please. you're also a church planter yes is that right yes. Done that. planted a church and now you're doing coaching as well like what kind of coaching are you doing uh, predominantly, I work with artists and ministers, so places I've been. Uh, okay. Like if I've done it um, and had enough failure and success and gained some bit of wins- wisdom, I feel like I can have some conversations. So mostly, it's mostly it has to do with ministers and artists. Okay. And is that the majority of the work that you're doing now, or like what does what does Gosh, sort that's of a like? Great question. Um, maybe I, I don't really I don't really know. Um, it's so like my Wednesdays are almost always like slammed from seven till about four thirty or five with okay. coaching clients. Um, but I'm I'm writing and you know we're gonna talk about a book I just released. I'm writing another book. I run a podcast. Um, and I, and I'm doing some, and I'm also touring again, not with music, but with storytelling and teaching stuff around the book. So I don't, it's a probably, it is an amalgamation of, of, of many things. The coaching is one of them. Yeah. Do you have like an overarching way that you think about the work that you do that it's like you do these 12 different things, but like they all fit in this sort of umbrella or this narrative. Yeah. I'm pastoring. I mean, it's really what I'm doing. Like, like. Um, and, and not, it doesn't, that doesn't get fully embodied in every aspect of thing. I don't know if it gets fully embodied really anywhere, but I am, I am pastoring in the way that I know how, um, Hmm. how should I say it? I'm pastoring in the way that I feel like right now I'm best at doing. I want to, it's the difference between like spiritual direction. Like I'm in a spiritual direction, um, apprenticeship. Yeah. And the difference between spiritual direction and pretty much everything else I do is everything else I do has pointers. Like I'm trying to move this group of people at least a little bit in this direction because I feel like this is correct. Whereas with spiritual direction, it's very helpful for me. I don't get to decide any of that. I'm just paying attention. It's also a part of pastoring. Um, and I'm just being responsible to whatever it seems the spirit is up to in you. Yeah. And helping you clarify that. That's an element yeah. of what I do otherwise, but like the pastoral part of it has more to do with the thing that makes it pastoral as opposed to just your, like spiritual direction is there are things that I do want to get across. There are things that I, there are directions I do want to move people as best I possibly can. Yeah. So in the other work, it's like you have some sort of um, end game goal in mind that you're trying to move folks towards. And the other, like the end game is more, um, how do I help you pay attention to what the spirit's doing in you and to pay attention to the voice of God in your life? Yeah. It's, that's a good, that's a pretty good distinction. I mean, and not, not even, I wouldn't even say end game goal as much as like, like as a coach, I'll listen to someone talk um, for a session or two and we'll ask some questions and then I'll get a pretty solid beat. And it has more to do with like, I think you should be doing this. And yeah. I would rather you stop doing these things. And we're going to like, we're going to, tr- we're going to experiment and I'm going to, I'm going to be more prescriptive. 
which is whereas with spiritual direction, I'm not prescribing anything. I'm just like, how did that feel? Yeah. 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 Um, and then how did you make the shift from like, so you're doing music stuff and you're touring and you're doing sort of that work into uh, sort of this larger pastoring work? Like, how did that happen? It was always there. So when I, um, let's, let's, let's hop on the time machine and we'll jump back to 1997, 1998. Um, I'm like a freshman in college. Okay. Good. Good for you. I was not. Uh, (laughs) um, I was a professional and I wasn't yet, but um, I was on young life staff. Um, and I was substitute teaching. I was tinkering around with, um, uh, with music a little bit like songwriting stuff. And, uh, I was also at the very beginnings of like a church plant. I'd been part of this, um, thing as a leader, as a leader in this thing for like three years up to that point. So I already had all these, all these things were already happening at the same time. And so when I started, uh, like between between ninety, like the end of ninety seven through nineteen ninety nine, I I cut a first record, started touring, I planted a church, I got married, and I started writing towards my first like like blog series type thing. So like everything sort of took off at the same time, anyway. Okay. So it, it has more. It's my trajectory has had more to do with like emphases in different seasons and crop rotation rather than like a full blown shift okay okay and then um i like i think i i had caught you on some different things in different kinds of ways like i think i had been paying attention in some sort of way to some of the stuff that you were creating and then i really started becoming aware of you in the books that you and scott erickson had created together those prayer books which were fantastic and thank you um, and I love um, the idea of this, like that there's this image, that there's an image prayer and a word prayer and that sort of like work together. And one of the things that's interesting to me, and I think that this is interesting and in even like following you on Instagram and the way that you sort of um, the content that you create on there is you have a way of creating really um, thoughtful content that's really simple, not simplistic, but like simple. It doesn't have a lot of words to it, but there's a lot being said there. Hmm. How, um, I've got a couple of questions about that. I'm curious yeah, one, like how did, how did those books sort of like come about? What was the like impetus behind, I, I don't know that I'd seen something like that before. So what sort of like, yeah. where did that like birth from? Um, so I'll start with the specific and then I'll go to the, the, the sort of meta part of that narrative. Yeah. Um, as a, as a pastor in this church community in, in Concord, California, we took Lent relatively seriously, especially for for Protestants, and we just we found it a really really transformative and formative season every year. Wanted to figure out a way to pass that on because, uh, which is like one of the things that I honestly believe about good religion is good religion provides a doorway for anybody for the most part who has at least to experiment, um, and so. I felt like our Lent practice was truly, was actually good religion, that there was a doorway here, that we would fast from, we had a partnership with the Blood Water Mission, and we would fast from every beverage but water for the entirety of Lent, collect the money that we would normally have used on on booze or milk or coffee or beer or juice, 
and then turn that over to the blood water mission and they would build you know build clean water wells for folks who lack water fun in the meantime we would we were experimenting a little bit with like what it looked like for us to be people of prayer and i was writing uh these short ish at the time prayers for my congregation and our congregation my congregation at the time was very um there was a lot of it's that traditional story there were a lot of folks who had been lots of other places and we we weren't like the alternative like oh this is better but we were more comfortable being tip of the spear if that makes sense like we don't know if this is going to work but we're going to try yeah were you engaged with emerging church stuff at that time or were you totally different we, we, were, we were not engaged with emerging church stuff at the time. We were identified with emerging stuff. Okay. Stuff. Yep. Like, I I had that same issue. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's us. Is that, a, I don't think that's us. Do you think that's us? Okay. Um, so um, I started then taking these prayers and putting them on Twitter and Facebook, which uh, then like I watched these short prayers for like four years uh, land in places that like I really hope they would go and like you you've done enough work to know like you have those times and the seasons in work where in which like you'll do a thing and you'll hope it works a certain way it works 20 to 40 percent the way you hoped it would and then all and then there's all this wonderful joy of like I didn't see that coming that's so awesome that it turned out that way this was fundamentally different as like a work expression in my life because it literally did exactly what I hoped it would do which I had never really experienced before. It wasn't like nailed it. It was like, holy. Um, I Like people who did not have like a, a, a comfortable relationship with religion, with God, like those were the folks who were responding, were retweeting, who were liking, who were messaging me with like, do, you know, things like, do you really, like, is it, a, do, is it okay if I don't call this a prayer? Cause like, I like it, I want this, but I don't want to call it a prayer because I don't want to be that person. Like that populace of folks resonated with it. So I, like I said, I kept that going over the course of four years. And then because it felt road tested as a, like, as a, as that expression, I wanted to do something that um, had more gravitas. And as much as I really do like the internet and I do, I like Facebook. I love Instagram. I actually still kind of like Twitter. Um, They're just like, it, I personally and most of the folks I know just don't take as seriously the things I read online as I do something that's printed in a book. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know all of why that is. I know that there's some psychosomatic stuff in there that has to do with like actually feeling something. Some of it's a curation process. Maybe there's some sort of spiritual aspect to it that I don't see. All I know is it's true that if it's online versus it's in a book, it's the exact same thing. It just has more heft. And I and because this seemed to be working, I wanted to do something that gave it weight culturally. Um, but I also knew that like 40 of these snippet prayers probably wouldn't get a publisher and probably wouldn't get a whole lot of attention or whatever. So I was, I'd been paying attention to Scott. Uh, I'd known him a little bit before that, but I'd been, I'd been paying attention to what he was starting to do with imagery at the time. And like that, what he was doing with imagery was what I was trying to do with poetry and words, which was, I'm not trying to answer questions for you. I'm not trying to show you how to pray. I'm trying to give you a handle um, that get, lets you get into how you actually pray. I'm trying to give you permission to 
if you want to borrow my words for a minute, fine. But because they're new, they're fresh, and they're really short, it leaves all kinds of freaking room for you to move on from there or to do something like it. I wanted a prompt prayer mm-hmm. in people rather than just like, here's a prayer. And so, and his imagery at, at the time was starting to do that. So we sat and had a really brief conversation. I literally said, here, <laughs> I said, here, I've picked 20 images that I would like. Will you give these images to me? And then would you be interested in making 20 more? And he agreed to that. And that became the first book. And then, and then that thing did what the first experiment did on Twitter, Facebook, Twitter, Facebook, which was it did. And you know, we self-published it, but it did in the culture around us pretty much exactly what we hoped it would do. Um, which is why we made a second one, but that's, that's how the thing got started, which takes me to the meta narrative part, which was the impetus. <laughs> I love, like, I love people and I love God. Uh, like I really do. And if I make mis- when I make mistakes dominantly, I make mistakes in, in the effort of, I make mistakes in the effort of love and care, but because of the way I love and care, I end up being a little bit controlling. Hmm. As a pastor, as a leader, as a writer, like I want, like I was talking about the difference between like coaching and spiritual direction. Yeah, yeah. I want you to come to certain conclusions. I and I had to come to grips with that as a leader. Like, no, there are really certain things that I want my people or people who pay attention to me. I want you to come to this. I want this to look a certain way. I have certain metrics by which I measure growth and health. Yep. Right. And that's not a bad thing, and but it is slightly controlling and it is a limitation on my leadership. What the prayer books did, uh, which is a thing I will continue to do for the rest of my life, is actually trust the divine work at hand in the place I am moving to work. So in other words, mm. if I'm showing up to be somewhere, like I'm headed to Florida this weekend, I hope to put together the best of, of what I've got this weekend. I'm going to bring, you know, working on the piece right now. I hope it's great. I hope it's the best that I've got with regards to this performance piece I'm doing on Saturday night and the sermon I'm doing on Sunday. I hope I bring the best. But that actually doesn't mean anything if there isn't like an ongoing, present, ex- extant work of God in and among those people that I am offering this as a tool to to begin with, which then that needs to become the actual heart of my work. Do I really believe God's up to something? Do I really actually buy that? Yeah. And how do yeah. I make work that actually honors that faith in me that I'm going to put this out here and then I'm going to literally trust the process of God in your life from this point on that's those books unlock that as an expression and unlock the, the sort of the impetus and the desire for me to live that way as a worker. Yeah. It was like, you could set a trajectory and you had to trust um, the rest of the trajectory to be outside of your control. Yeah. I I was thinking as you're sharing, like a part of my story of walking out of the um, ministry position I was in at the church that I was at was just this increasing amount of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And one of the things or several things that had contributed to it, but one of the things was this sort of sense of like, I'm trying to take people to this place and they won't go there. And, um, and I've been doing a lot of work with different pastors around the country. And a lot of them have a lot of anxiety around a lot of that same sort of thing of like, you want to trust the work of the spirit. You want to trust the divine to do something there, but you also like, feel this need to um, have certain kinds of outcomes, feel a need to have people end up at a certain place. And when they are not going there, you feel like a failure. You feel like 
you're not cut out for the work that you're doing. You feel like I put so much effort into the sermon, this program, this whatever. Or, or, I mean, the other side of it, and this is part of why I try to marry these two things, there, there's a control element to it. There's also like a limited capacity to love well element. Like I, in other words, like mm. sometimes it's like I have these metrics and I need to hit them so that I feel good about my, about my yeah, ministry. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's literally like, I think this is what's best for you. And it scares me to death that you're not going to get there because yeah. I love you. It's like being, this is a, such a terrible a example. It's like being a parent. And I hate saying this because I'm a white male and everyone's like, stop trying to parent America. I'm like, I am. I swear to God, I am. <laughs> but at the same time, like one of the, one of the best pieces of early advice that I've heard about parenting is like you spend the first two to three years in almost complete control. And then you spend the next like 18 plus years trying to let go. And like, I continue, I mean, I have an 11 year old and I have a four year old and I continue to find that. Um, I can't keep you safe from everything. I have certain things and I want them for you because like I want Caitlin to have these particular things and have these particular fruits. I want Ace's life to look a particular way. And I don't do that because I'm a controlling jerk. I do like, I have that in me because it's like, I love you and I want good things for you. And I think this is what they are. My job though, part of my job at least is to be like, let's see. And I will champion the actual good work in you. Yeah. So sometimes it's just, it really is pure control. And there's the Mark Driscoll element of things. It's like, you have a very specific metric and you're not willing to let go of it. Sometimes it's like, I, you don't, you don't know elsewise mm. how to love these people. And that's how, why you do it that way. Either mm. way, you know, pastors are stressed the hell out because that's been, you know, that's been the, the way we've gone about things. Yeah. Well, a piece of that sounds like codependency too, right? That it's like can be. a part of my feeling of well-being is caught up in your feeling of well-being. And if you are not in a good place, then I'm not going to be in a good place. Yeah. So part of that, like, not that there are two sides to everything, but like that's codependency to a certain degree, but also that is also suffering with. I mean, it's also the other way to talk about that is compassion, right? Hmm. Compassion and connectedness. I should suffer if you suffer. And that should give me a vested interest in your health. The the expression of that is probably the difference between codependency and love and love. I hope for and work for the best. And my, and my, and this is, this is really where the rubber meets the road. And my primary posture towards you is listening Uh, in codependency. I'd still hope and want to work for the best in you, but my primary posture towards you is effort. Hmm. That's good. I like that effort versus listening. That's a really, see, you're good at the succinct, like bring it down to this, to this thing. Um, which, so I've noticed that on your, uh, every Monday or just about every Monday, you do a thing on Instagram, a little, ask me anything. And I always appreciate the way that you respond to people's questions. And one of the things that I feel like I see get brought up a lot, um, get, you get asked about a lot has to do with like deconstruction. Yes which feels like it has become um, faddish almost in the past year ish. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I got so many like thoughts around it. And one of the things I want to ask you about, because I think you were the person who I first saw bring this up. I feel like one time it was probably several months ago, you said something to the effect of like, if you aren't interacting with Derrida, you're not actually deconstructing. I said, that... something, I said something along those lines. Uh, Dr. Robin, is, who, of whom I have a fan, uh, recently said something really similar. 
that had more to do with like the use of the word that like be, I think what I said pretty specifically was unless you're familiar with like the, the historical philosophical root of the word deconstruction, I'd be a little bit more careful just assigning the word deconstruction to whatever it is you're going through. If there's a difference between who you were when you were 15 and who you were when you're 27 or 40. So yes. Like it's it's not necessary. It wasn't necessarily like if you don't know Derrida, shut I, up because you're stupid. It was definitely, it was definitely more like um, because I care, literally because I care. I want folks. To, I would really like um, the people that I know around me. It's it's been really key for those folks to understand the difference between like, are you actually in a process of deconstruction, or are you just re- are you are you comfortably and happily for the most part, rethinking some things in your life. Cause those are very different processes. Yes. Um, yeah. And language well, shapes culture. So, and I may, I make you sound like much more of an ass than you actually sound like on there. And I think I usually listening- the one that makes me sound like an ass. So I'm, <laughs> welcome to the team. Well, I think anybody listening will figure out that you sound much more kind and generous than if they, uh, if they spent any time with me. Uh, but so like one of the things that I've been processing a bit, and it sounds like you might be like, uh, thinking in this similar kind of direction is using language of deconstruction is so like, it's very destructive and big language. And when we use that to talk about something that should be a normal process of growth or a normal process of like your faith expanding your worldview changing because you have new and different information or because you're not 15 anymore. And so you understand things differently. And, I wonder if even like I've tried to figure out, like, are are people doing more damage to themselves, creating more trauma by using language that's more traumatic than what the experience actually is? And then I've also wondered, is the church, does the church hold some responsibility for that in not creating a normalization of that process? And therefore, the only normalization of it is this big destructive word. Yes. I think the, the, we'll start with the first part. The last part first is part of why there's a, there's, there's a significant pendulum effect here, right? So it's a little cliche to say this now, but it's also not untrue that a, an overwhelming majority of Western white male led religious culture did not value questioning or questions uh, that did not have pre-existing answers. So it, it's not like it's not like they were like you can't question anything. No, you absolutely can. You can question anything and everything for which we have an existing answer. Was actually the thing. So if it was a question that did not that either did not have a consistent answer or a question that had a wildly conflicting spectrum of answers then that was disallowed. And because that was disallowed, because there was such a, 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 like an iron grip around that form of questioning, part of what happens over the course of time, and this is just, this is just, you know, mass psychology is that tension. Then when it explodes, it goes all the way the hell over there. Like, it's not like, Oh my gosh, I'm free from this. Now I can actually get into some of these questions. It goes from here culturally to all the way all the way to the wall. We're like, okay, I have doubt absolutely everything the center does not hold like the blame there is a considerable amount of blame to be placed on white male straight leadership over the course of the last 35 years that like you're pissed that all these kids are questioning things you should have created space for answers that you didn't have answers for questions you didn't have answers to 
that's the first part. The second part is like, I'm actually okay with the faddish part of it uh, because sort of like justice work, like things, things do this. Uh, like, mm-hmm. like I don't, I'm one of those cats who I don't have an issue. <laughs> this will sound terrible. I don't have an issue with like the cutesy, uh, cutesy teenage girls who are taking pictures at Disneyland after they went and built houses in Mexico. And part of why that is, is because they're celebrating this thing. They're like, uh, you know, they got the pictures with them and, and the kid. And I get it. It's demeaning. I understand that. But part of why they're doing that is because they want to be the kind of person who goes to Mexico and builds houses. And they want their friends to know that that's the kind of person they are, which I would suggest is a really good seed in them. There's something in them that wants to be known as a justice worker. Hmm. So hmm. there is something to be said for fads in general, like for like pop religious crap is like, I get it. I, and I'm enough of an elitist that like, I really am actually enough of an elitist where I'm like, <laughs> that's trash. And you know, it's trash kind of, but I can show you how trash it is. The other, but like the older I get and the more I actually fall in love with humans, the more I'm like, I, I showed up at young life club for the very first time because there was a girl I liked. And then I went back cause I could win $200 if I crushed a gallon of milk. And now I'm 48 years old and I'm still following Jesus and trying to teach other people. I've planted churches and make records. Like, like you come through some crappy doorways to some really, really beautiful places. So the fad part of it is like, yeah, it's wildly problematic, but what if, watch me now. What if the problem isn't that people are coming through crappy doorways? What if the problem is that once they come through those crappy doorways, there aren't enough considerate, loving, invested leaders to catch people in their ill-motivated uh, moments and then lead them to better places. What if that's actually the issue? And which is to say, what if the problem with, uh, with progressive religion is that we are so concerned about our own purity, just like our forefathers were, yep. that we will disallow the progress that would make us actually progressive. Hmm. That's good. The, um, Jonathan Merritt um, uses the phrase, and he used it with me on the podcast a while ago, that um, he says, I didn't move from conservative to progressive. I moved from closed to open. Mm-hmm. And it's a very different kind of posture, a very different kind of experience, because we have a lot of people who are moving from a fundamentalist, a conservative fundamentalist to a progressive fundamentalist, from a, a purity, a conservative purity to a progressive purity. Yes. And it's the same thing, different side of the coin. That same thing. Which is why I get hung up on the use of the word deconstruction as a blanket term for rethinking of any kind. Yeah. Because what actual deconstruction does and what Derrida was was an utter genius of is that it actually begins with like actual deconstruction. Not, I shouldn't say actual. Derrida-ian deconstruction. <laughs> My preferred deconstruction. Um, that's what Which we'll is who the popularized the term. Yes. And, right. So Derrida-ian deconstruction begins with like an inherent um, – actually, look up the phrase real quick. It was like uh, – begins with like, like I recognize in myself that like I have a desire for there to be a center. Like I have a desire for there to be a fundamental to all things. Like I recognize that as a, as a desire in me, which is to say that act, – like actual. I'm so sorry. This is why I, I told you I'm an elitist. I really actually am. That like <laughs> – that like Derrida and deconstruction begins with confession. It does not begin with critique. Derrida mm. and deconstruction begins with a confession that I desire for there to be a center to which I can, I can uh, anchor myself if I have the correct language. 
that's the first confession. The second phase of it has to do with like the reduction of that meaning, like the, like the whole of that meaning, like like the existential meaning to a particular set of words into language, which is to say the first step is I recognize that I want there to be like a fundamental meaning to the world, to life, to humanity, to God, all of it. I want that. I recognize that as a desire in me of this my confession. The second stage has to do with like, I recognize that I have in a very, in my very, I have limited what this thing is by language that I can only identify it by words. And I know that that's actually a problem, that if it is as fundamental as I want it to be, that I'm going to miss, I am missing by defining it with certain terms, certain terminologies, which is again, a confession. That's not a critique of someone yeah. else's language. I recognize that I want to control that. I want to have it. I, I want it. And I want to control it by way of language. And then it goes to, which is the last phase. It actually goes to like how like that reduction, the way I say it is like how that reduction of meaning to language it captures opposition. So in other words, I recognize not that someone else is wrong, but only that we are in conflict, which is so much better. So I confess that I want there yeah, to be yeah. meaning and that's a desire in me. I confess that I limit that meaning by my own language. And then I recognize that because I define that meaning by my own language, I am in conflict with other people. That's Derrida and deconstruction, which I think invites conversation. I think it invites humility. I think it invites actual process as opposed to like these dipshits got it wrong. I get it now. Yes, we have yes, to yes. burn that thing down and build something new. <laughs> no, bro, that's not deconstruction. You're just a prick. That's different. <laughs> I do like that we just brought that out of you. That Thank you. Like you were so, um, I, I was writing down in my notes as you were talking earlier that you're, like, you're really good at saying like, what's the good there? What's the redemptive piece of this? And then, and then you went there, which makes me feel better about myself. Amen. Amen. Um, all right. So like, let's talk about your book. Cause we spent a lot of time not talking about <laughs> your book so far. Um, you have this new book. It is what you make of it. And, um, like, so you talk a bit about like a shift of thinking, like where, where does all of this sort of come from? It is what you make of it. What's the genesis of this book? I would like to shift the responsibility for what comes next in culture to the people who have the keenest critiques. That's great. Love, hmm. love it. You're, you're, whatever it is that you came from culturally, institutionally, you're probably right about all the ways it misses. So what are you going to do now? Yeah, that's the, that is the heart of the book. That's great. You're probably right. And even if you're not right, at least you're motivated. So what do you want to do? That's it. That's my whole thing. I don't buy. I don't think there's a next. There's not a next model. There isn't another like we're done with models. We're done with like sweeping generalizations of what it means to disciple. We're done with we're, we're all done. Like no one wants another one. Literally look around. <laughs> like, no one wants another one. People have been pastoring for 45, you know, 50 years. Don't want another model. What they want, if they're loving people, is they want the folks they've been investing in to pass on as best they can what they've got in their hearts and souls. That's it. Huh. Yeah, so you're like calling us to be creators rather than critiquers? Um, or to create out of our critique? Yeah, to, to co-create. That if, that if we're really in league with the divine, then like pick up your mat and walk. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah, so you talk about like what it means to be a creative. How do, how do you define that? How do you talk about that? The willingness to pick up whatever pieces I have around me and do something with them, period. Huh. 
So like, what does that look like for you? I'm curious, like you said, you spend Wednesdays doing um, your coaching and then other days you're doing like other work. What do your rhythms look like that create the space and capacity for you to create, to have those ideas, to um, experiment with things? Like how do you have the capacity for that? Like actual processes? Yeah. So I capture a lot. Again, we'll go back okay. to Gary Vaynerchuk, who's like, like one of one of my spirit animals, Seth Godin, Gary, Seth yeah. Godin, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, and Gary's take on creative work, which is a lot like Seth's, has more to do with capturing things rather than just like starting from scratch all the time. Okay. So I like even right now, like I have the Notes app open on my phone right here, and it, it, it which I have twice now. Like I'll capture a quick little moment, something that like caught my brain yeah and i grab it because i'm it's i'm i am i'll say it in two ways i'm processing and and i'm trying to pay attention all the time also i'm in communion with the divine every moment of every day and i don't get to decide when i hear from god and so capturing that stuff even in a quick moment with a quick word i grab it that's the first part of the process second part of the process very very like hyper specific is I wake up at between 4 15 and 4 30 AM and I am in this space, which is, this is my garage if I'm home, uh, in, in this space. And I will spend some time doing a little bit of exercise just to get my body awake. Cause even my thoughts live in my body. And then there's a chair over there. I'll sit down in the chair and I will get to work on the thing either a that like I have to turn in in time because I've made commitments to other people or the thing that is most moving me in the moment. And I'll spend 60 to 90 minutes doing that. And that's every day. That's, uh, that's the general pattern. I'm, I'm capturing thoughts as I move along in notes or in, um, or in Evernote or in Ulysses. And then I'm making space and time for that regularly every single day. That's the everyday pattern. Yeah. The broad pattern is, twice or three times a year i will vacate uh into like a three to five day retreat and the entirety of that time is to finish things that i've been starting in the mornings okay and is that like a solo retreat you go on your own somewhere yep totally by myself that's fascinating i like it's such a simple process i mean i find there's a lot of us that have a lot of thoughts for things, a lot of ideas, a lot of starts of things, a lot of like, I'm really good at starting something. I'm not good at finishing something. And, um, and sometimes like it comes down to like those tactile, tangible, like, um, rhythms and habits that, that like, uh, help me to carry it on. Right. Um, and it's really easy for me to even like within systems that, I have been a part of to want to see something. So I have like a desire for something and there's the old, um, I've been going back a lot to uh, Dallas Willard's Vim lately, vision intention means oh, I don't know that you have this. Okay. So his thing on spiritual formation was Vim that it was, you have a vision for the, a kingdom kind of life, what it means to be okay. fully, truly human. You have an intention to move in that. Like you have to want that and desire that, yes. but then you have to have the means and the means are the disciplines. It's the yes. things that, and he would say a discipline is anything that you can do by direct effort that opens you up for God's spirit to do in you what you can't do on your own by direct effort. So good, man. So you have like those three. So like, there's a lot of um, like intention that's missing the means um of creation of like 
yeah. of creating new things, of creating new, um, and just like simple processes like that, I think for me are super, super helpful. Yeah. Um, which is a question, which is, which is on, on this end, uh, like a, it's a cultural, that, that's a cultural dilemma and a leadership dilemma. Because right. the the reasons for the reasons in my experience that I haven't or the people around me haven't made room for that is because and it always almost always almost if not always requires this it takes someone else saying that's a good thing in you make room for it um the culture uh, that I have belonged to as a as a Protestant person um, doesn't say that regularly it says this is the good thing and when you're done doing your necessary things we need you to come over here and help us get the good thing done yeah right so the leadership and cultural question with regards to creativity which is why i wrote the damn book is to say the thing that's happening in you actually is the important thing and if there's anything at all and i mean this to the absolute depths of my being if there's anything at all good about the work being done at the $4 million building that Hillsong built in San Francisco, if there's any good at, at all about that, it's that it unlocks the actual good happening in your life and the 800-square-foot apartment you live in. That's the only good there is. Because if it doesn't do that, then you should burn that to the ground. And there's mm. nothing interesting about it. But if it unlocks the actual – if it unlocks like the work of the divine in you, then it's worth the amount of money, the time, and the, and the energy they spend to build their culture, to build their building. Great. You could spend as much as you want to spend. I don't care. You can have as many people as you want to have on your Sunday mornings. I really don't care. So long as you're unlocking what's actually going on in the lives of the souls, the bodies, the households of the people who show up. But if you make their dreams subservient to your one specific dream, you are a problem and you should end. Do you um, think that there are models, like talking about church stuff now, do you think that there are models of church that contribute to um, the latter of what you're saying, the like building my thing, my hopes, my dreams, my empire? Are there ways of church that tend to lean towards that? Or is it more about a personal character of the of the leader? Um, I don't really know. I think, and I don't, and you would probably have more insight here than I do. Like I'm, I'm not always so sure I know the difference between like the, the ethos of the model itself versus the, the ethos of the person who's like, who constructed it or built it. Like, yeah, isn't, fair it, enough. It, isn't it always like somebody's right. So there's like, there's 3dm. That's really Mike Breen. Yep. Um, you know what I mean? There's, there's Acts 28, but that's, that's really like a room full of, like white men in their fifties and sixties, like or X 28, 29, X 29. That's how good I am at this stuff. <laughs> um, as a huge, I was a subscriber. Um, but like, I don't know always the difference <laughs> like between like the cult or the personality that is. Yeah. Heart. Okay. Um, all right. So back to some of the stuff in the book and in, in like creating mm-hmm. uh, your original plan, uh, doesn't always work. You have to move on from it. And you talk about like dealing with shame. Do you mind just talking a little bit about like the shame, the experience of shame of like the thing that you wanted to do doesn't work. It doesn't, doesn't yeah. happen. It whatever fails. I'll do it by doing like, I'll do like a truncated bit of one of the, one of the, one of the chapters, my Please. son, um, my son who's 11 now when he was like four or five, 
we bought a Lego kit. And the Lego kit was the Desert Rally Racer, the Lego Desert Rally Racer. And um, we got building and we came, we came to a moment in which like we, we couldn't find, like we didn't have the next brick, which then led to us like doing like some scanning around pockets of holding and like there, we were missing two bricks from this Lego kit because every once in a while, Lego will send out one of these kits and it won't have all of the bricks necessary in order to build the thing. So what we didn't know at the time, and this is like a bad dad moment because <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know the mo- in, in the time that like you could, you could log on to lego.com and like describe the kit and the Lego and they would just send it to you. I didn't know that. So what happened instead is my son, who I'm almost sure is an Enneagram four, um, he just got sad. And he just, he got up and he went to the kitchen and he poured a glass of water and he went and sat in the windowsill, literally sat in the windowsill and like drank water and stared out the window into the rain. That's so sad. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> a four-year-old boy. Which, um, and this is the thing I say in the book, which is very key, is um, he was doing a pretty wise thing for a kid, which is like you give sadness its moment. Because if you don't give sadness its moment, uh, it'll steal it from somewhere else that you don't want it to take it from. Yeah. So he gives sadness his moment and um, I'm watching this happen and I'm ready to move on. Right. I'm maybe like, let's fix this thing. But I take some deep breaths. Cause like, that's, it's really about my son. Like, I don't care that much about the thing. I don't need another Lego thing. Like this is about building. Right. I mean, talk about a leadership moment. I get so caught up in finishing the project. I forget about the people I'm making it with. So, um, I give him space to get sad. I join him. I, I grab a glass of water. We sit in the window. We get, you know. And then I start rummaging around in this like old bag of Legos that I have, like like my Legos, which like they're not kit oriented. And so as I start pulling out Legos, the same color, same shape, same size, like I start tinkering around. My son's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm going to finish this thing. And so he dives in. We we build a little bit and then it's ridiculous. And so we, we dismantle and then we build and then we're laughing because it looks like a duck or whatever. And then we dismantle and then we build them. And then like, we're connecting the entire time. And by the time we get to the end of the thing, it's pretty much nothing at all. Like the desert rally racer. It's, it's what I call in the book is the, it's the McRoberts truckish spaceship thing. <laughs> it's just this thing. And um, instead of it being perfect, cause that's how you end a story like that. We're like, it was perfect. But it was better than perfect because it looked like us, which I actually think is the divine story in the course of humanity is like the, yeah, there was a time when there were specific instructions about building like an ark uh, or like a temple, but those moments are rare. And even those things were like had, (laughs) I would suggest like kind of a different angle on it, but God has never shied away from the human element in the process of religion and development and progress on the face of the planet. I think the heart of God is far more interested in, in, in you and I building things that look like we're in it together than getting to a place where we freaking nail the thing according to the instructions. So disillusionment, disappointment, all those things are fine. But on the other side of them, ultimately are questions about like, okay, this did not work the way it was supposed to, which by the way, if you've been in leadership in any shape or form for more than 10 minutes, you know that that's going to be true about literally every single plan you make. 
Nothing you ever plan or build will, will look, work, or last anywhere near what you think it will. Literally, that's true of everything. And so the question always ends up becoming, what will you do then on the other side of your disappointments? And what will you build? Um, which then ultimately becomes a question of like, do you trust in the long-term process? Do you trust in the people you're with? And are you having a good time? In this thing with my son, like we had a great time. He has all these Legos, uh, like Lego pieces. Like right now, like we were just at Disneyland. And so we had, he got the Millennium Falcon, which I was like, yep. can we please? And no, he said, I will do it. So he did it. Um, but he's got the Millennium Falcon and that's great. And that's, that's, like, that's like two weeks old. The only other thing he has up there that has lasted is the McRoberts trucker spaceship thing. And the reason it means something to him is because he felt like he was, he sees himself in it, which I really actually believe is the heart of the divine in and through culture, creativity, leadership, church. Otherwise it's like, can you see yourself in it? And if you can't, then move somewhere else where you can or Mm -hmm. help build something because I don't care about the thing. I care about you. And if you're going to build the thing, I want it to look like it's got your fingerprints all over it because you're the thing I'm building in the world. Disillusionment in our establishments, in our works, in our institutions is a gift because it brings us back to the fundamental thing, which is us. You're the thing that God's trying to do in the world. And the fact that you're disappointed in that thing over there really might be the doorway through, <laughs> through which you enter into like, oh, I'm the thing that God's building. Yeah. Oh, Justin, that's so good. That's so good. Um, all right. So the book is, it is what you make of it. Yes, sir. And where can folks find you who aren't following you? Um, so just my name, Justin McRoberts, and that works kind of anywhere. So it works on Great. Google uh, and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I'm, I'm all those places. Love it. Love it. I'm so glad we got a chance to connect. Um, Thank you. Yeah, thanks for hanging out. My pleasure.